the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. As we do on Alternate Fridays, we check in uh, with Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Their website, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When you're thinking about uh, yourself or even uh, perhaps your children or, for that matter, your grandchildren or anyone, you know, looking to go into public policy, you know the problems in education and in higher education particularly. Pepperdine School of Public Policy is the answer to those problems. Pete, this is my first opportunity to wish you a happy new year. Happy new year. And to you too, Seth. Great to be back with you for 2022. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it so very much. I wanted to run something by you a little bit and see what your thought might be. You know, this week we saw a, you take it whatever direction you like, but this week we saw a Quinnipiac poll that has Biden's approval at hovering around 33 percent, President Biden's approval rating at about 33 percent. And it, it makes me ask the question, who are those 33 percent that can point to anything good this administration is doing? And then I was reading some other polls here in Arizona on a lot of cultural issues, parental rights and education, some of the transgender stuff. Um, and it seemed like they were getting between 25 and 35 percent approval ratings. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's the country we live in right now, that there is a hard left. It constitutes maybe 30 to 35 percent of the country and their noise uh, outweighs their their numbers but that there is a constituency in this country of left-wingers that is about a third of the country. And I wonder if if, if I, I would just love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that's very possible. You know, I give thought to uh, one of the more comprehensive national political studies done by a group out of the U.K. called More in Common, and it was called the Political Tribes Survey and uh, they essentially, uh, this was about two or three years ago, uh, highlighted in a bunch of different places. They broke up the entire American electorate into six or seven uh, political tribes from uh, certainly strong conservative to uh, strong progressive. And you're, you're definitely looking at at least 15 to 20 percent okay. who would fit into the hard uh, the, the stronger progressive side. And then, of course, you can bring people across who uh, I think don't want to be seen as regretting their vote for President Biden and are not yet willing to give up on him uh, that uh, that are going to constitute that that 33 or 35 percent. The rest of that slice of the pie. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, yeah the, the, the difficulty people have in climbing down from their positions when they realize they might have been wrong or that they were wrong. And it, it ties a little bit to an AEI study uh, you had tweeted uh, or at least retweeted, right? The very liberal in America are different. They have become more and more left wing yeah. over time. I, I was I was kind of 
I was kind of reading through that, and it was kind of an amazing thing for me uh, to to see what I what I did see there. Forty eight percent of very liberal Americans report posting online about their politics, compared to just twenty three percent of moderates and thirty percent of conservatives. They kind of dominate the the spaces we we kind of listen to the most, don't they? They do, and that that particular study was. Um bracing in the sense that for many of us as politically engaged conservatives who do utilize social media, um, it can be a place where sometimes we do wonder how representative it is, and certainly the results of this study by the American Enterprise Institute demonstrates that it's not yeah. at all. Yeah. The Twitterverse is, is not at all representative, and, and not only that, that uh, for those on the political left, uh, that can be a place of uh, consuming time and energy. You know, there was a, another study, and we've talked about this issue of loneliness yep. um, before. Yep. Yep. And just to tie these two threads together, um, AEI actually did a, and Sam Abrams there, who I know um, has done a lot of great survey work, uh, did a piece on uh, loneliness, which showed that those who are the most politically engaged uh, happen to be more lonely uh, than those who aren't engaged in any other civic activity. Do that again for and, me. That's, that sounds super important. I don't think I'd heard that. Do that yeah, again for no, me in the so audience. The, yeah, do that again. Yeah, so they, the, the study was on those who um, are involved in either civic or political part, uh, participation. Sure. From those who are involved in their churches, local business organizations, or politically. And one of the bracing parts of that were, were that those who were involved in those civic enterprises church, business, so forth, are far less lonely than the general population. But those who describe themselves as only being involved politically are actually more lonely than the population, right? And to drill down a step deeper, what they found is those that tend to comprise that, what you might call hyper-politically engaged group, uh, generally tend to be those of college education or higher and definitely more those on the political left, and they definitely tend to engage more via social media than actually in person. So uh, very much in accordance with this other study uh, that we're talking about here. So the tough thing with this is, and and we've also discussed this before, I wonder if your thoughts have have, uh, changed or expanded. It's been a while since we did, which... Um, we did it in the context of the university, but we might as well do it in the context of social media. Conservatives are now going about building, in some cases, their own new platforms, and it's a very difficult thing to do, and there will be fits and starts as there are with any new enterprise. But do you right. do you think that that is going to be better than not engaging on the traditional ones that we already know in the sense that I'm not so sure – It was better that conservatives, uh, obviously you and your school are the exception. Hillsdale might be an exception. Right. They have gone to the think tanks rather than the universities. And so we leave those things to sink under their leftism. You understand the point I'm trying to ask here. I do very much. And I I do think that there are people that will be engaged in social media um, that in, say, if they were to leave Twitter and go to one of these newer platforms – um, that's not necessarily going to encourage more conservatives right. to that's, be engaged that's in my social worry. media. That's my worry. I, I, I kind of think it's a zero-sum game there, that those who will be engaged in social media will be, and those who won't, won't. 
and it will just further exacerbate um, the the ideological leaning of these platforms. I think what's so difficult, and maybe in some ways the remedy, is to constantly remember as people on the right um, that the general that the Twitterverse is not reality, mm-hmm. uh, to borrow for it, mm-hmm. um, while still understanding that it is a place of of uh, communicating and understanding uh, and and receiving uh, news and learning about new things. I see what I what I what I, I agree with your analysis on that, and and what I want to kind of make plain here, and and you're training young minds into entering the world of public policy is that when we become so siloed, and I happen to think the left is more siloed than the right for two reasons. Feel free to argue the point or disagree too if you want. One is I think we are naturally more intellectually curious, but also we can't avoid the the culture we live in, which is dominated by the left. You can't avoid it. Uh, They can avoid conservatism. They can avoid – the other side can avoid our stuff – and and you saw it in sharp relief exactly a week ago when Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor was just broadcasting myths <laughs> in open here yeah. in open court, right, in open oral argument yeah. that she would not be broadcasting, A, if she read briefs from the other side, which is its own tell, but B, if she was reading something other than the press releases of the D.C. mayor, I think. This is what that leads to, right? Yeah. It's a very – it has serious implications, it really does, and and you're right. It was put in bold relief there uh, by Justice Sotomayor, um, essentially revealing where she's getting her information from. Um, I do think that regular conservative engagement on these platforms um, and in these institutions more broadly, uh, obviously this is the argument that I keep trying to make to conservatives, especially conservative students who just want to wipe uh, wipe their hands of academia. Yeah. I think actually the, the, the costs of that uh, are almost incalculable. And in that, we need to continue to promote and encourage smart conservatives to get involved in academia because that's, in the end, uh, it's, it's a vital civic institution and one that we need to um, bend back uh, the, the moral arc uh, that, that academia is currently on. But uh, to your point about breaking through these echo chambers, it's important uh, for the broader uh, public square, uh, which is which is sometimes uh, outlined and, and uh, certainly uh, developed by social media, that conservatives continue to engage there because those may be the only places where those on the left, and sometimes they can be in positions of power, hear a different point of view. That position of power is the tough one, right? Uh, because yep. it, there's a supply demand pull here. I left, uh, I, I left academia because I couldn't find a. I, I knew the market <laughs> for a white male who yeah. likes Aristotle is a shrinking market. Um, I, and I wonder, though, we want to fly into this sun. What you would advise on those kinds of fronts? Naturally, we'll have a commercial break right here, so we can yes. chew on it over the quick break. Can we come back on that point? What advice do you tell your students? Obviously, at Pepperdine, you know this is what we're pushing you to do, and here's how you get into that market. Can we talk a little bit about that when we come back? Perfect. Absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean of Pepperdine School of Public Policy. 
you will find great stuff, by the way, that he writes and retweets on his Twitter account, which is Pete4CA, Pete, the number four, Pete4CA. And by the way, what he was saying about the population and its divisions and silos, think about that in the context of California, too. There is big difference between Orange County and San Francisco. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is our guest. I wanted to ask him one more question on academia. Then I wanted to ask him about an interesting essay that's circulating from the Atlantic magazine, not David Brooks's, one that uh, you're probably going to see getting less publicity, and you'll see why in a moment, but it deserves more. Pete, first on that question, what do you advise students uh, who want to go into academia knowing that those uh, doors aren't exactly always open to them if they think the way you or I do or if they want to study dead white males? There are there are ways. There are schools. And uh, and I would just love to know what the advice is that you give. Well, I think there are two questions here. One is for the conservative student that feels a, a calling towards academia, I think it's a PhD. Um, are there opportunities even to learn these things in order to earn your PhD? Yeah, that's a good point question, too. Yeah, well, right. Positions afterwards. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Now. Um, on both those counts, I'm I'm actually optimistic. I, I, we are starting to see more in the same way that we saw. Oops, we lost Pete. We lost him there. Uh, if we can get him to call back, that'll be fine. Uh, uh, or, Bill, if you have that number, I don't know. But let me while we're waiting for that call back. Let me um, let me mention this piece in The Atlantic. I want to talk to him about it's by an author named Angie Schmidt. Why I Soured on the Democrats. COVID school policies set me adrift from my tribe. This is a uh, Cleveland uh, mother, and uh, she was uh, she establishes her Democratic Party bona fides. Uh, she says, you know, nasty things I can't even repeat on air about uh, Donald Trump. Um, so you, you're in the you're in the. You're in the midst, in the hands of a very left-wing person, and she lives in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, and she's talking about how she was dealing with her three- and five-year-olds because the schools were closed to them, even as such organizations as the American Academy of Pediatrics urged schools to open in June of 2020. I don't know if people remember that. June of 2020, the same year. The American Academy of Pediatrics was earning, was urging a reopening of schools. We have Pete back. Thank you. I'll come back to the Atlantic piece in a moment. I wanted to get Pete's uh, answer. Sorry about that, Pete. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. No, quite all right. Not sure what happened. But suffice it to say, I, we are seeing more of these uh, doctoral and certainly postdoc programs for uh, Ph.D. candidates in uh, classically liberal uh, disciplines Good. and academic um, specializations that I'm, I'm optimistic that they'll be able to gain those PhDs in fields that they're uh, supportive of. And then the next step, I, I really am over the course of the next five or ten years uh, optimistic about the opportunities to teach and engage uh, as an academic on these issues. Again, if I'm speaking to a master's student or certainly an undergrad, you're still five to seven years away 
from getting your PhD and getting out into the job market. That's right. And so in that, I, I, I do think we're going to see those opportunities increasingly available. And, and some new schools maybe, perhaps, right? Right. We were talking Absolutely. about the Austin, well, and, the Austin experiment, for example. And not just that, but one of the ways... Uh, I hate to reveal something uh, for maybe uh, some prying eyes, but what we're starting to see, even in in very progressive uh, colleges and universities, you're starting to see the growth of these honors colleges. Yeah, right. Um, and and we so have them at ASU. Within, right, 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 right. You do. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know the, the great work that's uh, being done in a couple of the the different uh, centers there. Uh, at ASU, yep. which just, are just a couple of examples, but we're seeing this across the country where you can find these opportunities, even in otherwise very progressive colleges and universities, yep. you find these oases there. Like the Madison program at Princeton, for example. Exactly. Right. Is it the kind of thing you're thinking of? Yeah, as well. Perfect. I, I was telling, while we were disconnected, I was telling the audience that we were going to talk about this uh, this. Um, a piece in the Atlantic uh, magazine from this this uh, lefty writer, very very much a lefty. I, she would describe herself that way. She would embrace it. She does. Yep. So, so I'm not I'm not being pejorative here. <laughs> and how she is uh, not yet changing her ideology, but she can't trust the Democratic Party anymore. That is what she concludes. Yeah, and of course the crux of uh, her political change, or at least her partisan identification, has been on COVID response, and particularly in K-12 education. Yeah. Uh, this is someone who uh, is in uh, lives in Cleveland, Angie uh, Schmidt yep. is her name, yep. and wrote this piece essentially out of deep frustration for what she rightly perceived was uh, an unscientific and frankly, uh, very self-interested on the part of teachers' unions, moves to keep uh, K-12 schools closed, including the ones in which she had her kids. And so um, one of the concluding paragraphs, just to quote a couple brief sentences, just shows where she's at. She goes, none of this has shaken my support for the Democratic agenda, which I still endorse. What I've lost is my trust that the party is truly motivated to act in the interests of those they claim to serve. How can I get excited about universal pre-K proposals, for example, when K-12 is in shambles? Right. Right. And so this is, to me, just one example of millions of what I would call uh, latter-day, if not neocons, (laughs) certainly Democrats who've been mugged by the reality of uh, these um, policies, again, mostly at the local level, whether it's in K-12 education or public safety, uh, but all revealed uh, by COVID response um, at, at the state and local level. I love this line of hers. The left-leaning rhetorical response to the pandemic seems out of line with Democratic stated values or stated values of the yeah. Democratic Party. And, you know, okay, well, this is what we have been saying for years. Uh, what has happened to the party that lectured us? They were the party of children. They were the party of poor. They were the party of the education. You have I, you and I have talked at length about where we're going to get new recruits to our movement from. I had thought yep. it would be over issues of censorship, censorship and free speech. And this COVID thing and the education thing, that might have been the sleeper. Can we come back on some of this? When do you, do you have a little more time no, for us? I think it's crucial. Good, yeah. good, good, good. I'm Seth Leapson. He's Pete Peterson. We will be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, our guest. We're talking about this piece in the Atlantic Monthly titled Why I Soured on the Democrats, written by uh, an, admitting, an admittedly very left-wing writer. And it has to do with um, the schools, the ardency, which with her which with which with the Cleveland schools uh, treated uh, her children and the rest of the Cleveland um, community's children in the public school system when it came to COVID and uh, shutdowns. And Pete, um, she's saying the left-leaning rhetorical response to the pandemic is out of line with democratic values, as she sees them, of course. And she's talking about the Democratic Party that a lot of people used to associate with caring about kids, caring about education, caring about these things. And we're thinking this may be the avenue where we're going to find our new recruits from. Uh, Conservatives are are going to see perhaps, perhaps, at least on some issues at first and maybe expanding into other issues as they go along once they like the temperature of the water. Maybe this is going to be where we we find our new recruits into our movement, possibly. No, I think it's – well, and we certainly already have the example of the Virginia election, the gubernatorial election, to demonstrate that this is – real. And as much as the left wants to portray this as just some sort of um, reaction to CRT, um, what's not being brought in is this this kind of conversation, which is about the closing of schools and the COVID response. Right. And um, and certainly that, was, that also played a role in the, the closeness of the New Jersey gubernatorial election. Yep. And it played a significant role, as we talked about before, Seth, in the fact that we even had a gubernatorial recall here yeah. in California. Yeah. Now, I know everybody wants to say, well, it was a wipeout once it actually came to the ballot, but what's easily overseen there is we had a governor in 2018 who had won by one of the great landslides in California history, having to even stand for a recall three years hence. Um, and that, I think that's having that to really spend does. millions of dollars to justify his tenure. Yeah. And and it, and so much of it yeah. was uh, so many of those signatories on uh, on the initiative to to get it to ballot were parents um, who were deeply unhappy with uh, the COVID response and the closure of schools. So this education piece, I think, is significant. Um, obviously, the public safety issue is another one that we're seeing in so many American cities. Uh, obviously, the homelessness crisis. Um, which is also occurring, uh, particularly here in California, but also in the country. These, if you will, quality of life issues, uh, which are made manifest in our cities, but are, are certainly have reverberations uh, both uh, statewide as well as nationally. Um, you know, those, those those particularly are, I think, grounds for which uh, new coalitions are being formed. Pete, uh, yes, and stick with me on education for half a moment, if you will, because it seems like it would be inescapable to see that parents across this country, you named several states across the country just now in in, in your response, parents across the country seem to be waking up to what not only their schools have been doing, but what the management of the unions is doing with the schools, and they seem not to get the message. You and I have talked before about probably what I think we both consider may have been the worst thing we read all of last year, which was uh, the head of the L.A. Teachers Union saying, A, there's no learning loss, and B, let's be thankful that our children learned other things like the words insurrection and and, and, and coup. 
boy, boy, are they tone deaf, or are they? I mean, do they not care? Maybe they don't care. Well, again, I, I think it's one of those things where if you've been riding in um, a Cadillac for so many years with such really unchallengeable power, uh, it becomes very difficult to see a world in which you are not in power. And I remember during the leading up to the Virginia election when I saw pollsters releasing information about where parents of public school kids were at. Uh-huh. I've never seen that as a broken-out survey category. Uh-huh. Uh, but when I saw that and saw that that was a group, I think at the time was 55-45 in the support of Yunkin, uh, that to me was a real bellwether. And if we continue to see um, parents of public school kids as a political category, uh, that is, in and of itself is going to be, to me, a major marker in a change of how we think about state politics. Do you have to run or do you have one more segment in you? Either one more. One more, because yeah. I want to kind of translate that to the tone deafness of the administration, the Biden administration, given his speech in Georgia this week, if I can. can yep. kind of, yep. uh, You know, he's not getting the message either, or maybe he is and doesn't care. Let's talk about that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Check it out at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is our guest, and um, I wanted to get I wanted to get your read, Pete, on. I know it's something you think on, and teach and talk a lot about, but I wanted to get your read, if I could, on the state of the nation and the state of this presidency. We had talked earlier about Joe Biden's approval rating coming in at about 33 percent favorable. Um, and this was um, this was the same week that he gave what will probably be his most famous speech as a president, or at least it is until now in Georgia, which I think by most claim, even I've seen liberals on TV saying this was about as divisive and maybe even the most divisive political speech they have seen from a president in, uh, of the United States in their coverage. Uh, he's, not only does he compare Republicans to Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis, he says, uh, I've never seen a circumstance where not one single Republican has a voice that's ready to speak for justice. I mean, this effort to wipe entire, an entire political party out yeah. of this off the stage of responsible or respectable uh, political dialogue is really quite something, but also maybe quite telling. Maybe they're tone deaf or maybe they don't care either. I don't know. I don't know if their ideology has become so hardened and they've given up on the idea of uniting. I don't know if they really believe this stuff or I don't know if they're just grasping at straws because nothing else has worked. Yeah. It was an outrageous speech, Seth, and if it does go down as his most memorable, then it can only tarnish his broader legacy. Uh, to your point, you know, um, I've heard it said on, on one of the other Salem hosts, Hugh Hewitt, show that once you've, once you've really lost Peggy Noonan, uh, <laughs> uh, 
you really uh, run into some challenges here. In her piece, uh, which will be in tomorrow's Wall Street Journal, she just uh, tears this speech apart. And in particular, uh, your question about is this where the overall party is and yeah. do they know or they care about the impact? There's one sentence in this first paragraph where Noonan writes, it is poor political practice when you fail to guess the effects of your actions. Mm-hmm. And that very much, uh, whether it was intentional or not, and I guess what what also makes it so outrageous, uh, and I think it's worth everybody's watching uh, Senate Minority Leader McConnell's response, which was... May have been the best thing he's ever done, by the way. It, that may have been his best. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but, but it, what McConnell got to was not only was was in the president's speech was he... Uh, in a Manichaean way, uh, taking on all on the the center right or on the right who have particular um, uh, policy um, support for uh, even maintaining the status quo in election administration, but he was also taking on many democratically run states mm-hmm. who, uh, in many instances, including the state of New York, the Senate Majority Leader's home state, including Delaware, the president's home mm-hmm. state, that the many of these uh, policies that are being proposed now by the Democrats uh, are at conflict with their own home state. Right. Right. And so... It, to, to, just to put a color sense. on that, just to just to fill that out, I had uh, election expert, I'm sure you know him, Hans von Spakovsky on the other day. Oh, sure. Yeah, right. OK. And he was pointing out what Joe Biden was declaiming against in Georgia. If that's a bad thing, it's worse in Delaware and in many that's East right. Coast states. Exactly. OK, go ahead. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and again, yeah. So, so to look at even the Georgia reforms, I mean, they're far better than other states and far what you might call liberal than what they were two or three years ago. And somehow this is in the crosshairs of the president as saying this is Jim Crow, whatever, 2 or 3.0. I forget what version we're mm-hmm. up to now mm-hmm. in the president's vernacular. But it, it really was um, disturbing. It was disturbing to hear that kind of polarizing language coming from someone who not even a year ago in his uh, speech, in in his swearing-in ceremony, said that he was going to be a unifier. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he was anything but that on um, the speech in Atlanta uh, this, this week. Can I underscore how important that is? It's important not just because it's showing a conflict between what he said and what he's done and what he's saying now. It's important, I think, because... Probably almost every independent I know that voted for Joe Biden voted for him for that reason, that unification yeah. reason, or in their words, really the opposite point, uh, too much division in America and that he could, yeah. he could overcome that. So he gets into this position um, and it's, it's not as if you get there by accident. I mean, the, you have a mandate yeah. struck down six to three that no one really ever had done before or tried before. It was unique. It was novel. And even to him, but the year before he issued it unconstitutional. Um, and, and, and and then you end up with a 33 percent support by the end of this week while you're calling Republicans um, uh, uh, having while well, you're calling Republicans Bull Connor and instantiating Jim Crow 2.0. How do you crawl out of that? I mean, 
we have seen people at high levels of polling go down, go south. We, that, that can happen. That can happen very quickly. It's very hard absent some kind of force majeure that you can stand up to, by the way, requiring you to stand up to a moment, right? It's very hard to get back up, isn't it? I would think. Well, it is, especially when you use that language, yeah. you know, uh, the American public will understand errors made um, in, say, that are consistent with somebody's personality, right? Uh, what they will not understand uh, is when errors are made that are contrary to one's perceptions of that person. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this particular sense, the people voted for uh, President Biden to be the unifier, to be the person that made the trains run on time. And here we have Afghanistan, COVID issues, and a very angry and polarizing figure. And you're right, these aren't things to apologize for. I don't, I don't know how you come back uh, and uh, from those kinds of errors. Peggy had in her piece a, a point that I think it's worth uh, taking home with, which is, you know, her concern wasn't Joe Biden. It was the party. It, it is yeah. the party. Uh, people should remember that. Yeah. When we said it was the party, people said, nah, the party's still moderate. OK, well, show yeah. me where. Pete Peterson, yeah. bless you, sir. Again, a happy new year. And we'll catch up again in uh, a couple for, in a fortnight. Sounds great, Seth. Look forward to it. Enjoy. Thanks for your time and your brain. I'm Seth Leibson. I'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I would be remiss. I have to read this email um, uh, from a listener uh, named Lucky. Great name. Uh, hello, Seth and Bill. As you often talk about your wonder dog, yes, Stagney the wonder dog, it's clear you are a dog person. There is a movement to honor Betty White, the actress who recently passed, and all her love and work for animals. Many are asking that people make a donation to an animal shelter on her birthday, which will be Monday. It will be her it would have been her 100th birthday, and what a better and fitting action to honor her. Thank you thought you would like to know if you had not heard of this already maybe mention it on your show friday yeah that's a really good idea that's a really good idea if you have a few extra bucks and you want to do something good it always feels good to give um do it to an animal shelter uh certainly especially in the winters that's an important thing to do i betty white got a lot of attention uh, and um fine and deservedly so i have nothing i have nothing uh, problematic with her um, I do want more focus and attention on Sidney Poitier, though, uh, and what he accomplished and what it says about America. Read Jason Riley's piece in The Wall Street Journal this week on Sidney Poitier if you haven't. And more importantly, do yourself a favor, which will be educational as well as entertaining, and watch the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a movie that I can't speak strongly enough about. You'll love you'll – love, it's Catherine Hepburn. It's Spencer Tracy. It's a great movie, and boy, it's not the kind of movie Hollywood could make today. It just isn't. I don't want to give away too much if you haven't seen it, but man, it's well worth your time. The acting is fabulous, the message even more so. Until Monday, God bless you all. Thanks for tuning in for a little bit. I'm Seth Liebson. Class is dismissed.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.